In 2016, I found myself camping one Friday night helping to supervise a group of Boy Scouts on Tucson's Mount Lemmon. As an outdoor enthusiast, avid camper, and Eagle Scout myself, there's very little about the woods or camping that surprises me, even when it comes to making sure a group of rowdy 12- and 13-year-olds don't maim or kill themselves. But I remember this night in particular, because during the course of the evening, I heard something I had never heard before. Some sort of blood-curdling animal yell that was coming from further up the mountain. At the time, I wrote down a description that it was somewhere between a coyote barking and a person screaming. It was loud, it was unfamiliar, and it sent shivers down my spine every time I heard it, which was pretty frequent over the course of an hour or so. To this day, I can't tell you what it was, and I've never heard anything like it again. And ever since that night, I've often wondered about that scream and what creature could have made it. I'm sure there's some rational explanation for it in that it was created by some mundane, run-of-the-mill animal native to the mountain. But part of me, both at the time and now, let my imagination go a little fancier and dare to ask the question, what if it was Bigfoot? Or should I better say, what if it was the Mogollon Monster? Because as much as any other place on the globe, Arizona has its own claims to monsters, hauntings, and spooky secrets. So join me around the virtual campfire as I share just a handful of stories about things that go bump in the night across the Grand Canyon State. Now imagine me putting a flashlight under my chin as I say, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 75, Bump in the Night. Welcome back, all you ghouls and goblins. Last week, we were talking all about mining and silver and what both brought to numerous communities across Arizona. But seeing that when this episode releases, it will be October 31st, or Halloween, I wanted to temporarily pause our story and do something a little different. So what I have instead is a collection of mysteries, monsters, and many a ghost sighting to share that will allow us to properly celebrate this most important of holidays while remaining on topic. Just a couple of quick disclaimers before we get started. While I won't say that this topic was chosen last minute, it was chosen close enough to deadline that my usual level of research was, well, impossible. What you will hear tonight is the result of a lot of second- or third-hand information gathered from some truly breakneck pace Googling and cross-collaborating. Of course, I'm not sure how well you can fact-check ghost stories in the first place, but in the interest of full disclosure, I want to make sure you were aware that in this particular instance, I don't have five books in front of me. The second disclaimer is that you will not, I repeat, not, be hearing about the fabled Lost Dutchman Mine in this episode— despite all the intrigue and possible murder associated with that supposed treasure trove in the superstitions. But fear not, that's only because I have plans to spin all that lore around the Lost Dutch in Mine into its own supplemental episode one day. So consider that incentive to keep on listening. 
With those two pieces of groundwork out of the way, we can finally turn to our first tale, that of a large, vicious, ape-like creature said to be lurking in the wild places of Arizona. Locals will almost automatically know what I'm talking about. The state's own take on Bigfoot, the Mogollon Monster. Tales of tall, muscular, hairy, wild men are plentiful around the world, from the famous Yeti of Tibet to the infamous Sasquatch of the Pacific Northwest. We find them in the Epic of Gilgamesh from Mesopotamia, the oldest known work of literature, to even an account written down by President Teddy Roosevelt. So it shouldn't come as any surprise, really, that Arizona has laid claim to its own variety. The earliest written mention of a Bigfoot-like creature in Arizona dates back to a 1903 article in the Arizona Republican, the original name of the Arizona Republic, the statewide paper based in Phoenix. In that article, a hunter identified as I.W. Stevens claimed to have seen the man-beast during a boat trip down the Colorado near the Grand Canyon. Stevens said he saw, quote, a man with long white hair and a matted beard that reached his knees. He wore no clothing, and upon his talon-like fingers were claws at least two inches long. A coat of gray hair nearly covered his body, with here and there a patch of dirty skin showing. End quote. He went on to describe the creature's face as, quote, seared and burned brown by the sun with fiery green eyes. End quote. According to the hunter, this beast rushed him while wielding a large club, and he prepared to fire his gun at it, but it became distracted by the appearance of a mountain lion on a nearby ledge. Being an early 20th century hunter, Stevens, of course, shot the mountain lion, which killed it and scared away the thing that had almost just mauled him. A bit later, Stevens said his boat passed the area again, and he could see the creature munching on the mountain lion's carcass, as well as that of the two cubs that had been with it. The hunter yelled at the creature to spook it again, at which point it scrambled up some rock ledges, but not before, quote, he flourished the club again and screamed the wildest, most unearthly screech I ever heard, end quote. Yeah, that sounds eerily familiar. Anyway, Stephen's explanation for this encounter was that he had heard that years beforehand, hostile natives had taken three men hostage, tied them to logs, and then sent them adrift down the river. This, he reasoned, must have been one of the survivors, driven mad by their ordeal. I'll simply note that no such incident is found in any other record, and blaming things on hostile natives is just a bit cliché. Stephen's account is an interesting footnote in history, but what turns the Mogion monster into more of a digressive paragraph happened 41 years later. That's when a 13-year-old boy named Don Davis went camping with his Boy Scout troop near Payson in 1944. According to Davis, during the night he was awakened by the sound of someone rummaging through the troop's belongings. Thinking it was a fellow scout, he called out for the noisemaker to stop with all the racket they were making. That's when the figure that had been going through the bags turned around and approached him. Davis recorded, quote, There, standing still, less than four feet in front of me, was a monster-like man. The creature was huge. Its eyes were deep-set and hard to see, but they seemed expressionless. His chest, shoulders, and arms were massive, especially the upper arms. 
easily upward of six inches in diameter, perhaps much, much more. I could see he was pretty hairy, but didn't observe really how thick the body hair was. The face and head were very square, square sides and squared up chin like a box, end quote. He also recalled a truly awful odor coming off the creature, which at first made him think he had messed his sleeping bag out of fright. The thing didn't seem that interested in the now fearfully quiet Davis as it went about its business of eating some food before heading out into the wilds again. The incident seared itself into Davis's memory, however, and in his adult years he would become a cryptozoologist, or someone who tries to find supposedly mythical creatures. It's also from his account, which occurred near Tonto Creek up near the rim, that the creature gained its name, the Mogion Monster. Though it might be something of a misnomer, as glimpses of tall, hairy, ape-like beasts have been recorded anywhere between Clifton and the Grand Canyon. Just for fun, it's said that a certain legend used to be passed around Camp Geronimo, which is the Boy Scout camp in the same area where Davis had his encounter, about an unfortunate pioneer named Bill Spade, who had built a cabin there. Apparently, the creature came one night for Bill and left nothing of the victim except for his face, which was hung from a tree. The creature, the legend goes, was often seen in the woods after that, just waiting for the next meal to move in. Now, these three anecdotes, one of which is obviously a tall tale meant to cause young scouts to quake in their sleeping bags at summer camp, are not enough to convince anyone by themselves. What gives the Mogion monster a modicum of credibility is more recent reports coming off the Fort Apache Reservation in the White Mountains. According to a 2006 article in Tucson's Arizona Daily Star newspaper, members of the tribe had begun to break their silence about numerous encounters with what we call the Mogion monster. One woman claimed that she had seen it off and on for 25 years, the last being just a couple years before the article ran. According to the reporter, tribal police are well used to getting calls about this strange creature sometimes looking through people's windows, and a radio broadcast from a local station had dozens of callers all reporting some sort of encounter or sighting. And in what I guess is the biggest indicator that people are taking this seriously, the crew from Searching for Bigfoot Incorporated, it's a real organization, look it up, came to investigate on the reservation. Footprints have been found up in the White Mountains, along with some hair, though the only testing that was done just confirmed that it was from an animal and not a human. Now, whether you believe the stories or not, I'm willing to bet that it might be just a tiny bit harder to get to sleep the next time you go camping in Arizona's rim country. Switching gears just a bit, we now head to southern Arizona for our next mysterious tale. Our scene is the University of Arizona, in particular the offices of the Arizona Daily Wildcat, the student newspaper. The time is 1994, and the main player is an Ohio native by the name of Brian Hance. But at the time, he was a young college student attending the U of A as a journalism and computer science major. 
It's during this time that he stumbled upon a mystery that continues to draw him in to this very day. In the pages of The Wildcat, on May 1st, 1995, he found a full-page ad taken out that was a nonsensical mix of symbols, mathematical equations, and languages. Chalking it up to a joke or a prank, he shrugged his shoulders and went on with life, like most of us would do. But then, on May 1st, 1996, he saw another one. And the next year, on May the 1st, 1997, there was the gibberish once again. Except now Hans was working at the Wildcat as their webmaster, and he had access to resources, namely the paper's archives. Over the course of two weeks, Hans was astonished to discover a mystery that had been printed in the paper since at least 1981. We are talking about someone taking out full-page ads in some of the most prominent spots in the paper, which might run you roughly $1,100 a pop, and they were awash in historical allusions, referencing figures such as Oliver Cromwell and Chairman Mao, mathematical, chemistry, and physics formulas, and 14 different languages including English, Chinese, Afrikaans, and Hebrew. Each also ended with the so-called smiley guy, a crude drawing of a large-eared smiling face. Hans eventually tracked down more than 50 ads, always running on May Day, but with others published at random times throughout the year. It was too elaborate to be some simple gag, and way too expensive and long-running to be the work of just one person. Plus, the messages seemed to allude to a group searching for some kind of prize, though their goals have also sounded downright revolutionary at points. So, in the late 90s, Hans set up a website, MaydayMystery.org, which is still up and running and is being updated, though it does still look like something a student would throw together in the 90s. Go check it out, it's fascinating. Here you can find scans of the ads going back to 81, with room for people to comment on what they think the clues could mean. Things took an even weirder turn in 1999, because that's when the anonymous posters made contact. Hans began receiving emails from a group calling itself The Orphanage that made it quite clear that the ads were not a game, and that there is some sort of cause behind the mystery. When Hans set up a P.O. box for the website, the orphanage even began sending him packages with his P.O. box listed as the return address and covered in foreign stamps. And these packages would contain Middle Eastern coins and currencies or other eclectic items. Eventually, the orphanage even moved to calling Hans directly, he recalled that he had people apparently reading off a script that would usually tell him about upcoming ads before abruptly hanging up the phone. Once he received an email chastising him for not posting the newest ad, and after he wrote back that he'd been sick for a few days and would get back to scanning soon, the orphanage sent him a get well card in the mail. Theories have abounded over the years about what the ads could mean, and range from some sort of elaborate prank to a secret society of some kind communicating about plans. But since all this came to light, only one firm connection has been made back to the mysterious group behind all of this. According to a variety of articles, some of admittedly dubious veracity, 
The person placing the ads, at least in the past couple of decades, is a reclusive retired Tucson lawyer named Robert Truman Hungerford. Hungerford, a U of A alum and apparently also a member of Mensa, says he is a legal advisor for the shadowy group behind the ads, which he calls the Brotherhood. Honestly, I'm not sure if what I've read about him is true or not, because even the most credible articles make him seem like a very cryptic and puzzling figure. Various sources claim that he speaks a multitude of languages, is a self-described antisocial hermit, and that he has an undergraduate degree in philosophy and a doctorate in theology. Tight-lipped about his involvement with the ads in the Brotherhood, he has declined to comment on suggestions that he is the sole author, and he admits that it could all be the work of one crazy person. At least, that would be a great cover for it, according to one quote from him that I found. Hungerford has gone on record as saying the advertisement's roots go back to a group that formed in August 1969, and that they were passing messages before the 1981 advert in The Wildcat, but just in a different medium. But he also says that studying years of the publication will help someone solve the mystery, and that the 2008 financially-themed ad and the 1989 message that prominently displayed Cromwell were big clues. Finally, he said that all people needed was the text on Hans's website to solve the puzzle, and helpfully suggested they start with the theological bits. At the current moment, the May Day Mystery has a Facebook group with 1,500 members who continue to try and tease out the answers from the puzzles, though no one seems closer than Hans was back in 1997. As his own website says, quote, Many things end, but the mystery persists. End quote. Or perhaps better said is what the orphanage wrote in one of its emails, quote, the day you can see the door, you will be welcomed inside. End quote. But what would a Halloween episode of anything be if we didn't involve a good ghost story or two? Luckily, Arizona is certainly not lacking in that department either, which means we can round out our talk of the ghoulishly delightful with a few choice, dare I say, haunting selections. Of course, this list will by necessity have to be abbreviated to just a handful of stories, as any place of respectable size in history will have a good ghost story or three to pass around. So let us start our ghost tour up in the mining town of Jerome, a copper capital off of State Route 89A with some of the steepest geography you'll ever see in the state. During its heyday in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Jerome boasted a population of some 15,000 and was so filled with prostitutes, opium, gunfights, and other societal ills that it was branded the wickedest town in the West by a New York newspaper. In the early 20th century, the United Verde Mining Company was the main employer in town. And after blasting in the mine hit a fault that caused major damage to the town's hospital, United Verde stepped in and built a state-of-the-art facility that included such luxuries for the time as patient call lights, x-ray machines, laboratories, and surgical facilities. That building is still standing today, even after United Verde left, Phelps Dodge took over and then left, and it was left in the hands of several caretakers. 
1994, it was sold and renovated into the Jerome Grand Hotel that opened two years later, and is a place you could stay tomorrow if you wanted. But if you ask the staff and other guests there, they'll say that the town's past isn't so easy to escape. As you might imagine, for a place that used to be a hospital, almost from the beginning, guests began to report hearing noises of people coughing, moaning, or crying out in pain. There have also been sightings of ghostly doctors, nurses, and patients seen walking the halls. Numerous guests have also complained about the noise made by children running up and down the hall where no children were. One even reported a baby crying loud enough that he called the front desk to complain, but when security went to the room the crying was coming from, they found it vacant. And not every ghost is even human. A spectral cat apparently walks the hotel too, and guests have heard it meowing, purring, or scratching on something. At other times, it will brush up against the legs of guests and staff. Some guests even feel it snuggle up to them in bed. According to one source, in 2008, a guest staying in room 20 even captured a photo of the cat, which depicts the phantom feline staring at the photographer from a nearby table. They apparently keep that photo at the front desk along with other ghost photos. But the specter that comes to everyone's mind is that of Claude Harvey, a hospital maintenance worker whose body was found pinned under the self-service elevator in 1935. While no formal autopsy was ever done, word is that Claude's neck had been broken, but apparently his injuries weren't consistent with being crushed by an elevator. Although there is no proof, most suspect that he was murdered. And that may be why his ghost continues to be seen, mostly near the hotel's boiler room, or on the staircases near the elevator. He's always a shadowy presence, never a full apparition. And though he has never done anything malicious, most report feeling an angry presence about him, probably due to his unexplained death. But while we could probably do a whole episode on Jerome's sordid haunted history, I want to head north to the city of Flagstaff and one of its haunted hotels. The Monte Vista Hotel has an assortment of specters, which it has collected after nearly a century of operation. Opened for business in 1927, the hotel came at a particularly high moment for tourism in Flagstaff. Over the years, it would play host to a virtual who's who of celebrities, including Western novelist Zane Gray, President Harry Truman, and numerous film stars such as Gary Cooper, Spencer Tracy, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and Michael J. Fox. In the 1940s and 50s, Sedona and Oak Creek Canyon were popular filming locations for westerns, so the cast and crews of those films were based out of Flagstaff. During one such filming, a guest reported the first appearance of one of the Monte Vista's now regular spirits, a phantom bellboy who said to knock on doors in the middle of the night to announce room service, but disappears when guests open the door. Some have claimed to see this bellboy, complete in an old-style red hat and coat, including that first guest. This paranormal encounter didn't spook him, though. After all, it was always a difficult task to rattle the legendary John Wayne. On the second floor is a room that played host to a long-term boarder in the 1980s who had the odd habit of hanging raw meat from the chandelier. 
This eccentric man died in that room, and now it is said to experience a host of poltergeist activity. A maintenance worker once made several repairs to the room, making sure to turn off the lights and lock the door behind him when he had to pop away for a few minutes. Upon his return, he found the lights on, the linens from the bed torn away, and the television blasting at full volume. And if we were to go up a floor to room 306, where in the 1940s, two prostitutes were murdered and their bodies thrown out the window. Their vengeful spirits seem to have remained and have a particular hatred for male guests, who often report feeling watched. Some even say they've experienced cold hands being held over their mouths and nose and holding them down while they're trying to sleep. Before we leave Flagstaff, I want to move a short distance to the campus of Northern Arizona University, in particular a dormitory known as Morton Hall. Here we find the sad tale of a student known only as Kathy. The story goes that in the 1950s, Kathy was a student at NAU looking forward to receiving some money from her family to travel home for the Christmas holiday. However, news came that the family had found itself bankrupt and that no ticket home would be coming. She sought comfort with her boyfriend, whom she believed to be on the cusp of proposing to her. Except the boyfriend instead left her for another woman, leaving her heartbroken and alone. Unable to stomach the two separate blows, Kathy is said to have hung herself in the stairway to the attic and would not be found by custodial workers for two whole days. And just to make the story even more juicy, a stillborn baby is said to have been found in the basement a month later, though there was never a proven connection between the baby and Kathy. Ever since then, students have reported seeing a woman in a blue nightgown, what Kathy was wearing the night she killed herself, and sometimes even with a rope around her neck. Her presence is also said to cause the walls to turn pink, her favorite color, and also to make the room smell like roses. Then there are the usual odd occurrences, such as phantom footsteps, bathroom faucets randomly turning on, televisions and radios switching on by themselves, with the radios almost always tuned to a station playing songs from the 50s. One fun anecdote is, according to local legend at least, the walls near where Kathy killed herself have never been painted over because when it had been tried in the past, the paint kept peeling off. But we must leave Flagstaff now and travel down south to the once mining boomtown and now artist haven that is Bisbee. And just to keep with the theme, we have to check into a certain hotel where the spirits are said to interact with guests and staff alike. While there are many places we could stop at for our haunted tour, today we are going to the Copper Queen Hotel. Opened in 1902, this Edwardian-inspired building bills itself as the longest continually operated hotel in the state of Arizona. It was originally built by the Phelps Dodge Mining Company to host investors and dignitaries drawn to this southern Arizona copper oasis during its boom years, but it eventually became a hot tourist spot and has hosted the likes of Harry Houdini, Teddy Roosevelt, and even Charlie Chaplin. Then there are, of course, the ghosts. The most famous resident spirit is that of a woman named Julia Lowell, who was a prostitute operating out of the hotel's third story, most likely in the 1920s or 30s. The story goes that Julia was an attractive woman in her 30s, and during the course of her job, she fell madly in love with a client. 
However, when she confessed her love, the man spurned her. At least one source says he was actually married and would not leave his wife, but either way, he turned her down and refused to see her again. Heartbroken, Julia killed herself, possibly by hanging herself in or just outside of room 315, which is now named in her honor. Since then, guests, particularly male guests, have reported encounters with her rather flirtatious spirit. She is said to whisper in men's ears as they sleep, or pull back blankets and tickle their feet. She has been spotted, scantily clad with a bottle in her hand, dancing either at the foot of a guest's bed or at the bottom of a staircase. One of the other famous resident ghosts is also the most playful, that of a young boy named Billy. He's thought to be the ghost of a child of a hotel worker and who had been known in life for roaming the halls and dining room and playing with the other children. Somewhere between the ages of five and eight, however, Billy drowned while playing in the nearby San Pedro River. Since then, he's become quite the prankster at the Copper Queen, with people hearing him laugh in the halls and finding that he has rearranged items in their rooms, or has stolen personal items and hid them in different parts of the hotel. At times, he's been spotted jumping on the leather couches in the lobby or hiding under the tables in the dining room. But the catch is that his figure has only ever been seen by children and never adults. Then there is the cigar-smoking man who wanders through the fourth floor where the smoking balcony used to be. He is described as a gentleman in a top hat and cape with a beard and long hair. But what is distinctive about him is that he is always seen with a cigar, which guests will sometimes get whiffs of even if they do not see anything. While he will scare guests with his sudden appearance, he's never been that menacing and quickly disappears when approached or when someone tries to take a photo of him. One source even claims that he will walk through walls to get away from a camera. I could go on and on, both about the Copper Queen's haunted history as well as other spots across Arizona. The dorms at the University of Arizona, the Birdcage Theater in Tombstone, and a restaurant in Tempe all have tales of the supernatural to offer. But unfortunately, we are out of time, so those tales will have to wait. Maybe we can gather around the virtual campfire next Halloween and keep talking about ghosts, disappearances, and other mysteries from around the Grand Canyon State. However, next week it's back to business as we take another look at who exactly was at the helm of the state in the late 1870s, if in name only, and why Prescott was able to steal back the territorial capital after it having been established at Tucson for nearly a decade. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.